often do patients return to the clinic on time for anti-VEGF injections? It might be less often than you think. I'm Greg Notstein, he's Scott Chris Wanis, and this is New Retina Radio from Retina Today and Bryn Mawr Communications. Dr. Christina Wang joined us to summarize her podium presentation from ASRS 2023. She and her team explored how often patients missed scheduled appointments, by how much, and whether missing appointments affected patient outcomes. And Dr. Nick London joined us in our mobile studio in Seattle to share details from his presentation. He'll tell us about anatomic outcomes in wet AMD patients following dual inhibition of anti-VEGF and ANGE2. talk about treatment intervals in a vacuum. A patient should return in, say, four weeks. But how often do they actually return in four weeks? Are they a few days or even a few weeks late? And if so, are some patients more likely than others to have long treatment delays? Dr. Christina Wang might be able to shed some light on that for us. She shared data from a study assessing these very questions at ASRS in Seattle. Dr. Wang is a professor of ophthalmology and the fellowship program director for vitreoretinal diseases and surgery at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Dr. Wang, welcome back to New Retina Radio. Thanks, Scott. Always great to chat with you. Treatment outcomes are, in part, a function of patients receiving as-scheduled anti-VEGF injections for VEGF-mediated diseases. How do you even begin to track whether patients received an injection at their scheduled rate? Exactly. And that's really what lit a fire under this entire study idea. It was when one day one of my wet AMD patients had been stable for years and years on a Q eight-week regimen, and she came back for her scheduled visit, and I noticed a small recurrence of fluid. I thought that this might be due to disease reactivation, so I told her we would contract her interval down to Q six weeks to get this under control. And then she took a moment to remind me that due to a family vacation, she had actually gone nine weeks since her last injection, and I didn't know. It shocked me that I almost unnecessarily contracted her interval, and I really realized at that moment how much we depend on accurately knowing how much time has truly elapsed since the last injection. I realized that there was an opportunity to do better in terms of our tracking of treatment schedules. So this was a retrospective chart review of county and academic practice patients who were seen between 2017 and 2022 and treated with anti-VEGF injections for wet AMD, DME, or RVO. Patients were included if they had at least one injection with at least one follow-up visit during the study period, and they were excluded if they had a history of focal laser or intravitreal steroids. For each injection, we calculated a delta, which was defined as the time between the actual and intended follow-up date. So say you have a patient being treated every six weeks and they're due to return on August 15th, but maybe they're on a vacation on August 15th, or maybe I'm away on August 15th, and they end up scheduling and returning on August 22nd instead. The delta for this patient is seven days. And I wanna point out one small uh, pearl here, which is that notice that technically they are not late. They come in on August 22nd as they were scheduled. And yet these are the types of real world delays that can be overlooked in similar studies. And I bet they happen all the time. Overall, the study included 518 eyes, 435 patients, and nearly 5,000 injections. How did that population break down? 
Well, overall, 58% of patients were being treated for DME, 29% for wet AMD, and 13% for RVO. But it's interesting to look at the differences in subgroups between the county and academic practice patients. County patients tended to be younger, and there was a greater proportion of Hispanic and DME patients amongst them, while academic practice patients tended to be older with a greater proportion of Caucasian and wet AMD patients. Let's shift our focus now to all the injections. How many had the delay of more than one week? Well, first, let me clarify that we used a threshold of one week to represent clinical significance and to provide some buffer in scheduling, since we know that patients may not always be able to return at four or six or eight weeks to the exact day. With our per-injection analysis, we found that the mean delta per injection was 14.1 days, with greater deltas for county versus academic practice patients across all indications. But I think a more impactful way of framing this comes with looking at the distribution of these delays, where we found that over 21% of injections had a delta greater than seven days, meaning that nearly one quarter of injections are given at least seven days later than intended. And what about the per-patient analysis? What did you find there? In our per-patient analysis, we found a mean delta per patient of 21 days. And once again, the mean deltas were significantly greater in the county system versus the academic practice at 29.4 days versus 8.8 days, respectively. Again, looking at the spread of these days, half of patients had a mean delta greater than seven days. And amongst that group, the mean delta was striking 38 days. Now, drilling down by disease state, 59% of DME patients had a delta greater than seven days versus 35% for wet AMD, and this difference was statistically significant. Additionally, we also found that 22% of patients were lost to follow-up with a substantially greater percentage in the county versus academic practice cohorts. And as shocking as these figures are, they corroborate what has been reported by others. All of this is surprising, or maybe it's not, depending on your perspective, but it's at least eye-catching. An important question is this. Did it have any impact on patient outcomes? Great question. We did find that larger deltas trended with worse visual outcomes, but this finding only reached statistical significance for county DME patients. Similarly, we did not find a relationship between deltas and OCT. However, I want to point out that we looked at the difference between the final metrics versus baseline rather than at each injection interval, which may be more telling. So we're currently in the process of taking another look at that data because, as you know, Scott, many studies have shown that delays in treatment are associated with worse visual and anatomic outcomes. And of course, that makes a lot of sense. Is there any plan to keep exploring these questions, maybe with a larger database such as the IRIS registry? Absolutely. As I mentioned, the first thing I'd like to do is to go back and really try to better elucidate the relationship between deltas and patient outcomes. But I think expanding this analysis to a wider range of practices in patient populations would be incredibly insightful. I actually just presented this work at the ASRS meeting last week in Seattle, as you know, and I can't tell you how many people echoed the concern that our awareness of injection intervals may not be as accurate as it should be. This question might be beyond the scope of your study, but I want you to speculate for a second. Can you speculate as to the causes for the imbalance between county and academic facilities in your study? I think it comes down a lot to the patient populations at these sites. Based on a lot of published literature, it is very reasonable to assume that the delays that are longer and more common in county versus academic practices and in DME versus wet AMD or RVO patients may at least be in part due to socioeconomic factors. I mean, think about the challenges that can be associated with regular treatment, transportation, need for accompaniment, employment, caretaker responsibilities, finances, 
systemic comorbidities. I mean, the list goes on and on. And many of these hurdles are substantially magnified in our county hospital population. Additionally, DME patients are generally younger and therefore more likely to still be working, raising a family and juggling, of course, other medical appointments. So it's not surprising that we saw the trends we did. Well, Dr. Wang, very interesting researcher. Thank you for your time to explore this topic. And thank you for joining us again here on New Retina Radio. Thanks so much. And great work with New Retina Radio. I always learn a lot from you and your guests and appreciate the opportunity to share our work with you today. Our next interview has a clear, concise question. Does dual ANG2 VEGF-A inhibition affect anatomic outcomes in wet AMD? Dr. Nick London answered this question at ASRS this year, and he's with us today in our mobile studio in Seattle. Dr. London practices at Retina Consultants San Diego in, you guessed it, San Diego. Dr. London, welcome to New Retina Radio. Greg, Scott, so honored to be here. Thank you, guys. Let's start with an overview of Tanaya Lucerne, the phase three pivotal studies that evaluated the safety and efficacy of ferisimab for wet AMD. Yes, Scott. So Tanaya and Lucerne were large phase three trials. They each enrolled over 600 patients, and they allowed patients treated with ferisimab to go out to Q16 weeks dosing after four initial monthly loading doses compared to an aflibercept arm that was treated Q8 weeks after three initial monthly loading doses. Uh, the first year of the study compared these doses at these intervals, and then the second year of the study actually allowed a treat-and-extend arm. One of the great things about the studies is it's in, in, it investigated a new molecule. So fursimab is a dual ANG2 anti-VEGF molecule that is uh, the first of its kind. And then talk us through the steps of the trial design itself, starting with the initial dosing phase and then all the way up to the second year of the study where a treat and extend regimen was allowed. So all patients received a loading phase in the frisimab arms. Patients were treated with four monthly loading doses, followed by disease activity assessments. And these disease activity assessments occurred at weeks 20 and weeks 24, at which point patients were uh, evaluated to have disease activity based on their visual acuity, based on central retinal thickness or macular hemorrhage. And if they had disease activity, they were treated and kept at that interval. So patients with activity at week 20 were treated and kept on a Q eight-week interval. If they did not have disease activity, they were observed, seen four weeks later at week 24. If they had disease activity then, they were treated and kept on a Q 12-week interval. And if not, they were seen and treated four weeks later and kept on a Q 16-week interval. Patients in the aflipercept arm, on the other hand, received three monthly loading doses and kept on a Q8 week schedule throughout the study. And then the second year of the study had a personalized treatment interval, correct? They did, yes. So patients after uh, week 64, I believe, uh, entered into a treat and extend regimen, which is meant to be reflective of real-life practice patterns where the interval was either increased, maintained, or reduced based on sort of modified treat and extend criteria. The study results were instrumental in the approval of ferisimab for wet AMD. Remind us what they are. So the primary endpoint was met at year one. It was a non-inferiority study, and ferisimab was noted to be non-inferior to aflibercept at this uh, variable dosing regimen compared to Q8-week aflibercept. Ferisimab use resulted in disease control with fewer injections at year two, 
about four and a half letters gained with furosemab versus 4.3 letters gained with aflibercept, and about 150 micron CST reduction in both groups. The median number of injections was lower with furosemab use at 10 uh, up to Q16 weeks, whereas it was 15 injections in the aflibercept arm at Q8 weeks. Let's focus on anatomy for the moment. You just explained that furisimab up to Q16 weeks was not inferior to a flibercept Q8 weeks at year two. I'm interested in the earliest parts of the study where the two arms were receiving their initial monthly loading doses at the same time. What did you find in terms of anatomy? Yes, Scott. So that's a great question and a great part of the study. So we can learn from those early weeks uh, through week 12 what the differential effect of the medications was, of course, patients were treated monthly in each of the arms. And we can see greater mean CST reductions compared to a flibercept in the furosemab-treated arms. Well, one thing we might wonder is if we simply quadruple the dose of the anti-VEGF component of the medication, uh, do we see a similar effect? And we know this from other agents that have been studied, both in Harbor as well as in Pulsar, where we have that quadrupling of that anti-VEGF dose. And we did not see in these studies any additional benefit from this, which implies that we do have a benefit from the anti-ANG2 component of furosemab. Talk to me about the drying effect in those first four weeks. Was there a difference between the two arms when it came to subretinal fluid or intraretinal fluid? Yes, Scott. At weeks 4, 8, and 12, absence of subretinal fluid and intraretinal fluid occurred at a statistically significantly higher rate in furosemab arms. At week 4, it was 60% versus 49%. At week 8, 72% versus 62%. And at week 12, 67% versus 77% for the furosemab arms. Let's shift gears to dosing regimens and treatment burden. How did the treat and extend protocol during the second year of the study affect dosing regimens? At the end of years one and two, about 77% of patients achieved greater than or equal to Q12 week dosing. In the treat and extend period of the study, more patients achieved Q16 week dosing. This was 45% at the end of year one and 63% at the end of year two. And do we think that 16-week dosing is the ceiling here? Well, it's certainly not going to be the ceiling in real life. Um, In fact, we can look at this in the treat and extend regimen. Of the patients that were eligible to be considered for an extension beyond that, we see that 56% of patients who had completed one of these Q16-week cycles could have been extended to a Q20-week interval. Safety is the name of the game in retina right now, and a lot of retina specialists are focused on it for good reason. Were there any safety signals that stood out in Tanaya and Lucerne? No, there were none. I mean, it had a very acceptable and favorable safety profile, which was comparable between the the two groups. Rates of intraocular inflammation were low, and there were no cases of retinal vasculitis in these studies. Dr. London, thanks for joining us from our studio in Seattle. Thank you very much. Honored to be with you guys. That's it for this edition of New Retina Radio. Be sure to continue to tune in to your feed as we have more coverage from the 2023 ASRS meeting in Seattle. And please tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast. Please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. All of these things are really important to us. See you soon.